This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on Christ in the Old Testament. Our scripture reading today is taken from chapters 3 and 4 of the book of Malachi. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord, as in days gone by, as in former years. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. And you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Then you will trample on the wicked they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, Holy God, there is nothing that delights your heart more than pouring out your spirit to exalt your Son in our hearts. And so we pray that as we meditate on your word today, that you would glorify Jesus, and may we leave this place strengthened, encouraged, in love, trust, and worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Man, it's hard to believe it's Christmas again. I swear we just had it like two weeks ago. And people used to tell me, when you get older, time flies faster and faster, and I would have never believed it until I experienced it. And it feels like just a few weeks ago that we started this series on Christ in the Old Testament, but it was actually September the 11th, 2022, that we opened the book of Genesis together. But we've had quite a journey through these 39 books of the Old Testament, and we started the series, if you can cast your mind back that far, with the risen Christ on the road to Emmaus. It's so striking to me that when Jesus rises from the dead, of all the people that he could have appeared to, he chooses to manifest himself to two heartbroken, discouraged disciples. And along the way, Jesus opens the scriptures to them, beginning with the books of Moses and the Psalms and the prophets, and he reveals that it all speaks about him. And it was necessary for the Messiah to first suffer and then enter into his glory. And they find their hearts strangely warmed within them. All these books of the Old Testament speak about Jesus. And what I'm hoping to do today is give only a very brief time to this last book of Malachi at the end. This is going to be a 40-point sermon with two or three sentences for each book of the Old Testament as we rapidly leap from peak to peak 
and quickly survey these books and just get a sense of how they all point to Jesus. And as we open the Old Testament to the book of Genesis in these opening chapters, we find that the first human beings are placed in paradise and God offers them the gift of immortality, the gift of eternal life. But our first parents, Adam and Eve, they're seduced by the lies of Satan and they use this tremendous gift of free will. Instead of choosing God, they choose sin and they choose death. But what's amazing is that as they stand in their shame and guilt before their creator, the juice of the forbidden fruit is still drying on their chins. God promises that one day the seed of the woman will come and it's going to crush the serpent forever. Even in their worst moment, the light of hope shines. And then as we flip through to the second half of Genesis, we meet the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it's through this family that God promises to send the seed and to bless the world. But then Abraham receives a terrible command from God to get up early in the morning to take his son Isaac, his only son, the son whom he loves, God emphasizes seemingly cruelly, to the mountain and to sacrifice him. And at the last moment, God stays Abraham's hand and Isaac does not die because God is the one who's going to offer the ultimate sacrifice, not demand it. And one day the true promised heir is going to carry the wood of his own sacrifice up the mountain and unresistingly allow himself to be bound and to be offered up for us all. And then in Exodus, we find the people of God, the children of Abraham, toiling as slaves in the land of Egypt. And they're praying and they're crying out to God for deliverance. And God's rescue of his people in that book with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm is the great paradigm of salvation in the Old Testament. All the other books go back to it for the primary picture of what salvation means. And it's a picture that's going to be fulfilled when the true shepherd leader comes out of the wilderness declaring, let my people go. And he will lead them out to worship God. And then in Leviticus at the foot of Mount Sinai, we learn that our guilt is as great a problem as the oppression of Egyptian slavery. Our sin has stained us deeply and it's made the presence of God, which should be life-giving. It's made the presence of God something ominous and threatening. And we learn we need the ministry of a great high priest who will enter the heavenly sanctuary to make atonement for the people and who will offer the perfect sacrifice of his own body so that we can draw near to the throne of God, not with fear and trembling, but with joy and with boldness. And then in the book of Numbers, we wander with the Israelites for 40 years in the wilderness, a time when instead of trusting the God who would save them with such grace and power, the people murmur and they grumble in unbelief. And as the people gather, complaining yet again that they're thirsty, that God has forgotten them, that he's abandoned them to die in the wilderness, Moses raises his staff and strikes the rock and clear cold water gushes forth. And as St. Paul will later explain in 1 Corinthians, that rock was Christ, demonstrating God's commitment to care for and provide for and to bless his people despite what they deserve. The fifth and final book of Moses is the book of Deuteronomy. When the people gather in a great assembly before Moses, before he dies, one last time before entering the promised land, and Moses delivers God's promises if they obey, promises of blessing and flourishing, and also God's warnings and threats if they disobey. And we learn that Israel's only hope is not in herself and her faithfulness, but in her covenant Lord, the one who never wavers from his side of the covenant. Her only hope is that this Lord will come and somehow keep Israel's side of the covenant for her. 
And after Moses dies, his deputy Joshua leads the people across the Jordan River into the promised land at last. But before commencing the conquest, Joshua meets a mysterious stranger who tells him that he's the commander of the Lord's army, who tells them, take off your shoes, you're standing on holy ground. And this figure is the pre-incarnate Christ, the true and better Joshua, who will conquer the land and bring God's people into permanent rest. And after the days of Joshua come days of darkness and anarchy when every man does what is right in his own eyes. And God again and again sends judges to liberate his people from foreign marauders. And the warlords in the book of Judges are some of the most flawed and troubled characters in the Old Testament. Men like the mighty womanizing Samson, who we find out is a very selfish and narcissistic man who wastes his life and his tremendous gifts, but who in his last moments points to a hero greater than himself. When bound and humiliated, he stretches out his arms one last time and sacrifices himself to save his people, doing more in his death than he did in his life. The little book of Ruth, by contrast, is a gentle story in these dark times. It's a kind of romantic comedy in which a woman of low social standing arrives in the little town of Bethlehem. And by divine intervention, she gives birth to a baby boy who's welcomed with joy. And in that story, Boaz, he plays the role of the kinsman redeemer, the rich family member who was the one responsible for buying his poor relations out of poverty and debt and slavery. And when Boaz fulfills his family duty and he expresses true kindness, a word that appears again and again in the book of Ruth, he's really a true picture of the redeemer who's going to come and live up to his obligations and actually go far beyond his obligations to those he's promised to care for. After the book of Judges and those days of anarchy, we realize Israel needs a strong, godly, just leader. And in the book of 1 Samuel, the people ask God for a king. Please give us a king like the nations around us. And God gives them a king, Saul, who is tall, who's the handsome, impressive kind of leader that the people want, and who actually leads the kingdom into defeat and disaster. But it's not the end of the story, because there is another king that Samuel has secretly anointed under God's direction, Ruth's great-grandson, David. And David is a man after God's own heart. He's the champion who slays the dragon in single combat to save the kingdom, and who will have a descendant, the lion of the tribe of Judah, even greater than himself. And the second book of Samuel continues the story of David after he survived the wilderness and being hunted by Saul. He reaches the throne. And then there's a long, slow depressing downfall. David is a good man, but he has secret vices. And it's his bad character qualities that bring disaster on his family and sow the seeds of later destruction for his kingdom. David has to run when his gorgeous long-haired son Absalom leads a rebellion. And as he leaves Jerusalem with his tiny circle of faithful followers, King David is weeping. It's a story full of pathos. He's weeping And he silently bows his head as he walks, listening to the curses of the worthless man Shimei as he goes, knowing that this is God's righteous judgment on his sin. And that snapshot is a moving picture of the king who will leave the same city centuries later in procession, mocked, jeered, struck, and spat upon by his own people who have rejected him, suffering not in repentance for his own sin, but to atone for the sins of Israel and the world. And then in the book of 1 Kings, we meet the prophet Elijah, a despairing prophet because the people of God have hardened themselves and are persecuting him. 
And he journeys back to Sinai, to the wilderness, and goes up the mountain. And in a cave, he encounters God. Not in the earthquake, not in the whirlwind, not in the fire. It's when he hears the still, small voice that he covers his face with his cloak and emerges from the cave to meet with God. This gentle whisper of God is going to come into the world as a human being. The still, small voice of divine love. The mystery of the gospel in the weakness of the cross, in which is hidden the power of God. And the book of 2 Kings, Elijah's successor, Elisha, recovers a lost axe head by causing it to bob up to the surface of the river. And we meditate on that story as a kind of picture of Israel herself. She's a tool that has escaped from the hand of her owner and sunk down to the depths, dragged below by the gravity of her own sin. But God is going to plunge down into the darkness to recover what he's lost and what is precious to him and to bring us body and soul back up into the warm sunshine of God's light. First and second Chronicles retell previous stories from a new angle. And we circle back in first Chronicles to King David. And David has a dream of building a house for God. He wants to build God a temple. And God speaks to David through the prophet Nathan and tells him, David, I'm not going to let you build a house for me. I'm going to build a house for you. And it's a promise that, as Peter Lightheart reminds us, highlights the absolute absurdity of reciprocity in dealing with God. We don't get to pay God back on equal terms so that everything's even. And by reminding David that he needs no house, the Lord is reminding him of the utter asymmetry of their relationship. God is always the lavish giver, and we are always the empty-handed receivers who can only bow down and glorify the amazing grace of God. And the house, the dynasty that God will build is going to culminate in a king who's going to establish God's people in the land, in God's presence, in joy and safety forever. This temple that David longed to build, that he dreamed of, is going to be built by his son Solomon, as described in the book of 2 Chronicles. And as Solomon completes the temple and he calls a great assembly to Jerusalem, He kneels on the platform in the center of his people, and he prays this great prayer of intercession for Israel, pleading that God would come and inhabit this house and begging that even if Israel fails, as Solomon wisely suspects that they will, that God would remain faithful and even bring them back from exile one day. And Solomon on his knees is his most kingly moment. And it's a glimpse of our great royal high priest who even now at this moment is interceding for us with power at the right hand of God, shielding us from every evil, securing every good for his undeserving people. And years later, Solomon's worst fears have been realized. The people have rebelled. They've committed injustice and idolatry again and again. And under God's judgment, the divided kingdom, north and south, Israel and Judah, they've been conquered. Their populations have been deported by the Assyrians and the Babylonian empires. But then King Cyrus of the rising Persian kingdom, he allows a remnant to return to the land, prompted by God. And it's the priest Ezra who leads the people in purifying their lives, rededicating themselves to God, and rebuilding the temple. There's actually a more ancient exile that still traumatizes all of humanity. Our exile from Eden. We're waiting for a new Adam to come to take us somehow past the flaming sword back into paradise, back into God's presence. 
And there beside Ezra is the governor, Nehemiah, and he's stirring up the people. Let's rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, these crumbled walls, so that we can be safe from our enemies to serve and worship God. And Nehemiah rebuilding the walls is a little miniature picture of God's bigger story throughout the Bible, in which the redeemed people from all nations are going to gather to worship God forever within the mighty walls of the new Jerusalem, a city which has foundations whose builder and maker is God, a metropolis far greater than Nehemiah's little city, a city into which no evil can ever penetrate. And in that great construction project of God, there is no weapon of the enemy that can prosper against Christ our captain or against us, his servants. Not that the enemy won't try. And in the book of Esther, the evil Haman vows to wipe out all the Jewish people living in Persia. But he doesn't realize that the queen is Jewish. And Esther has been raised up by divine providence for just such a time as this. She's placed in a position of power to save the group. And Esther doesn't know whether she's going to live or die, but she knows she needs to risk herself and she takes on herself in that story, the plight of her people. She faces ultimate danger on their behalf. She places her head in the lion's jaws and she brings about not just her own restoration, but the salvation of her people. And in that story, everything hangs on her, just as the fate of the world depends on the courage of a single person sent by God in the fullness of time, raised up by divine providence, the one man who is willing to confront the forces of evil. Let's turn to the story of Job. And in that book, there's a single righteous man who becomes the focus of the battle between God and Satan, this great cosmic battle. And he's the single point where the righteousness of God is going to be manifested. And Job's undeserved suffering, his anguish in this book, points to the one absolutely innocent and righteous person who is going to suffer as though he were guilty. The one who will weep tears of blood in the garden of Gethsemane, who cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And now Job knows, and now we know that our Redeemer lives, and in the end, he will stand on the earth. The 150 Psalms describe the range of true worship in major and minor keys. Lament, because the world is not right. We are not what we should be. But there's also praise, because the psalmist trusts that the creator who established order is going to come again as the judge to reestablish and to confirm order in the universe. The Psalter, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, is the vicarious prayer of Christ for his congregation. This is the prayer book of Jesus. And you'll never understand the Psalms until you realize that Jesus is both the righteous man who can fully pray all these prayers with absolute integrity, and he's also the God who hears our cries and is going to turn the world's weeping into laughter. The book of Proverbs celebrates the wisdom of God which was present with him at the creation, at his very side. And the Logos, who is himself the agent and the pattern of all reality, He's the wisdom and the word of God, and he's the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And then the cynical and world-weary book of Ecclesiastes reminds us we live in a fallen world, much as we might try to deny it. In this world, life's toils often seem pointless and our lives feel meaningless because in the end, we can't escape the cold hand of death. But like the rest of the world's sages and religious leaders, the preacher in Ecclesiastes can only offer a few broken tools to help us cope with our depressing reality as best we can. But what he cannot do is stand before us and declare with authority, I am the resurrection and the life. 
For that, we need someone far greater than Solomon to come from eternity into time to destroy death, to release creation from its bondage in futility, and to bring us into the fullness of life with God so that we human beings experience the ultimate meaning that our hearts long for. The Song of Songs is this poetic celebration of erotic desire between a man and a woman. But of course, human love and sexuality, beautiful and powerful as they are, though so often twisted, at their best are participating in a much greater sacred mystery. And we learn that we were created, each of us, for mystical oneness with God. And the most beautiful and the most satisfying marriage on earth, it's only the echo of the love of Christ for his bride, a love as strong as death that many waters cannot quench. And with that, we move into the prophetic books. We begin with Isaiah, the fifth gospel, who prophesied about the suffering servant who would atone for Israel's sin, who would fling open the doors of the new Jerusalem for all nations as they stream up into the holy city in which God would prepare a feast for his children, swallow up death forever, and wipe away all tears. Of course, the great prophet Isaiah only spoke of the man of sorrows, but the prophet Jeremiah was called to embody him. Jeremiah is the weeping prophet. He's down there in the pit, up to his armpits in the mud. And his life, as well as his words, express the suffering love of God for his people as they're led into exile, waiting for the rescue to come, waiting for the one who would come and suffer with and for his people and usher in a new covenant, the coming of forgiveness and the renewal of the heart where exile would no longer be a possibility. And in the book of Lamentations, we encounter the voice of a single man, a lone sufferer who personifies, who encapsulates the grief of exiled Israel. I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of the Lord's wrath, he writes. And in the darkness, even as he's chewing on gravel, the light is shining. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. One of the brightest stars in the Old Testament, shining in the deepest depths. And the lonely sufferer's agony, it's not going to be meaningless. Somehow, it's going to usher in a new dawn of mercy that God's undeserving people cannot possibly imagine. And then in the book of Ezekiel, among the many strange visions that prophet perceives, he witnesses this inexhaustible spring that originates from the summit of the cosmic mountain and flows down as a great river that brings life and greenery wherever it winds. And it's a picture of the goodness of the Lord irrigating the dried and desiccated wilderness of his creation, turning it into the Garden of Eden. And who is this inexhaustible spring? It's the one who's going to come and declare, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And then moving on to Daniel's book, you see these different dreams and pictures of terrifying beasts with claws and teeth that represent human regimes of oppression and domination throughout history. And in one of the dreams that Daniel interprets, these empires are toppled by a stone not cut by human hands that crashes into their feet of clay and brings them to the ground. This stone is the king of kings, it's the lord of lords, who has the keys of death and the grave on his belt, who wields the scepter of universal dominion in his hand. It's the exalted son of man who's coming with the clouds of heaven to bring about a kingdom that will never collapse and that will never end. And with that, we enter the Minor Prophets, which we can only describe very briefly. 
We get into the book of Hosea, that painful story of the betrayed husband who goes to seek out his unfaithful wife, who pays her debts and brings her back home. We read in Joel about these terrifying prophecies about the coming day of the Lord and the one who's going to pour out the spirit of Pentecost. Amos was the prophet who confronted social injustice fiercely. And his prophecy makes us long for someone to come, not just to proclaim, but also to manifest God's righteous reign in an unjust world. We met Obadiah, who in his little book cries out for God to avenge all the evil that Edom has done to Israel. And Obadiah shows us the need for someone to come and break the cycle of violence that our world is caught in. Jonah is the story of the world's worst missionary, who even in his reluctant obedience, dragged almost by the hair, he points to the ultimate missionary prophet who's going to cross every barrier in love for us because he's the kind of God whose mercy has a wideness that our imaginations cannot measure. The prophet Micah spoke of one with ancient origins, someone from of old, who's going to come from the little town of Bethlehem, who will be ruler over Israel, who's going to fling our sin into the ocean of God's forgetfulness and teach us to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God. In Nahum, we encounter the wrath of God against evil which is really the goodness of the Lord as it meets human sin and rebellion. The wrath of God that will be fully revealed only when Jesus comes to judge the living and the dead, whose return will bring joy to his saints, but will cause the wicked to cry for the mountains to fall on them and destroy them. Habakkuk teaches us that the just will live by faith, that we can hold on and even rejoice in suffering, not by our own strength, but because of the righteous one who lives by his faithfulness who goes through the suffering of the cross and trusts himself and us to God and to the vindication of the resurrection. Then in the book of Zephaniah, we encounter an aspect of God that perhaps we find even more difficult to handle than his wrath. The startling fact that he delights over us with singing and we're filled with wonder that somehow we sinners condemned and unclean are looked upon with eyes of love. The prophet Haggai urged the return exiles to rebuild the temple to complete whatever they'd started in Ezra's time. A temple which, of course, was a physical symbol of God's glorious presence on earth among his people. And the reality that that building pointed to was Christ's own body, the physical location of God's presence on earth, destroyed and raised up in three days. Last week in Zechariah, we saw God's king entering Jerusalem, lowly and riding on a donkey. This royal shepherd of Israel will be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, who somehow, by being pierced, will open up a fountain to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from all their sin and impurity. And now, in Malachi, the last of the prophets, and the final book of the Christian Old Testament, we discover, perhaps to our discouragement, that a century after the people have returned from exile, they're just as sinful and just as rebellious as ever. God has a dispute with his people. They're withholding their tithes. They're offering sick and crippled animals in sacrifice. They're worshiping idols again on the side. They're breaking covenant with their wives through divorce. Malachi is the final warning of the Old Testament. The last person God sends before sending his messenger. The figure that Malachi describes that is far more exalted than all the kings and priests and prophets that God has ever raised up. Because the arrival of the messenger means the arrival of the Lord himself to his temple. And who can endure the day of his coming? He's going to come like a fire, a fire that's going to burn up all the wicked and arrogant like stubble. 
But for those who revere God's name, who are waiting and longing for him, for the lowly and the humble, that same fire is going to be the sun of righteousness that rises with healing in its wings. And Malachi concludes with the prophecy that God is going to send someone ahead of him to herald his arrival, the prophet Elijah, identified, of course, in the New Testament with John the Baptist. This man who appears from the wilderness and urges Israel, repent, prepare yourself. The kingdom of God is at hand. There's someone who's coming after me, whose foot is at the doorstep, who is far greater than myself, the thongs of whose sandals I am unworthy to untie. And so the Old Testament ends. And really, after 16 months meditating on these 39 books, we should realize by now that if hope depended on human faithfulness, the Old Testament would be a far slimmer volume. And this would have been a much shorter series. The Old Testament is the story of the never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love of God, to borrow Sally Lloyd-Jones's wonderful phrase. These books tell the story of God's relentless determination to save his fallen, beloved humanity, to rescue us from our worst impulses, to destroy the forces of darkness that enslave and oppress us, to somehow undo the curse of death itself and to heal all of creation. And now Malachi, and actually every one of these books, they end on tiptoe, breath held, waiting for something, for someone. For the Old Testament is not complete in itself. All 39 books of the Old Testament are whispering, Jesus is coming. They whisper very subtly and very quietly. But the full glory of God's salvation awaits the coming of Jesus himself in the New Testament. Now, of course, the Old Testament is the story of yourself. It's the story of myself. We're the sinful, grumbling, unbelieving, idolatrous, despairing people of God. The story does not depend on your faithfulness, thank God. Because all of our deficiencies, and we have many, all of them are overwhelmed by the lavish grace of God in Christ revealed to us now by the spirit of Pentecost. We no longer live in the land of types and shadows, groping and stumbling for some kind of hope in a confusing world. The son of righteousness has come, and God is calling all of us to dwell in the full goodness of his presence. So, shall we bow our heads and pray, and ask that the Holy Spirit would shine the light of Christ in our hearts? Heavenly Father, we celebrate your amazing inexplicable grace. You created us. You called us good and you refused to abandon us, even as we fell into sin and darkness, even as we cut ourselves off from your light. We thank you, God, for your relentless determination to rescue us, to rescue us from the darkest sides of ourselves, to destroy all these malevolent forces that seek to enslave and crush us, even to undo the curse of death itself and to bring us back into your presence. We thank you, O Father, for revealing Christ to us in these last days. We pray that he would fill the horizon of our hearts, for we want to be a people that magnify Christ, a people who rejoice in him, who celebrate him, and who make him our only hope. Fill us with your spirit, O Lord, so that we can be a people who experience his presence and who reflect his radiance. We pray, come, Lord Jesus, and complete this mighty work of grace that you have begun. In your awesome name we pray. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. 
Learn more about us online at TICF-Georgia.org. Thanks for listening.